What I'd like to talk about tonight is telling the truth about ourselves. When we come to a meditation retreat, we're asked again and again to look directly at what's going on within ourselves. And often we find this is actually a very hard thing to do, to stay with that process, to just keep attending to what's going on. And I want to go into this a little bit together tonight. What's that about? Why is this looking at ourselves seem so difficult? This last few months, I had the good fortune of actually being on a holiday. (laughs) I was in um, Thailand. I first was in India and then Thailand and went on to Indonesia. And I haven't been to Indonesia before, so it was really a wonderful experience. I've been to India quite a few times now since I helped uh, Christopher teach the Bodhgaya course every January in India. But I hadn't been to Indonesia, so that was really a wonderful experience. But when I was in Thailand, I happened to be there in April, which I don't know if any of you know, but it's the hottest month of the year in Thailand. And we knew, I was with a friend, and we knew that it was going to be hot there, so we thought if we went to this island, the beautiful paradise island that some of you see in postcards and travel brochures, that we would escape the heat. So we went to this island of Koh Tao, there's three islands called the Samui Islands, Koh Samui, Koh Pangan, and Koh Tao. We went to the furthest one and the most remote one and had a little bungalow up in the, the, the rocky hill overlooking the turquoise blue waters filled with coral and tropical fish. We could go snorkeling every day and just lay out on the terrace and just do nothing all day, which is what a lot of people fantasize about. But it was hot. (laughs) 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 And this heat was so oppressive. It was about 110 degrees. And it was so oppressive that I couldn't enjoy myself. It always seems like there's a catch, you know. <laughs> we look for the idyllic situation or the ideal situation, and we get there, and there's something wrong. I think um, it was Joseph Goldstein who gave us a secret mantra at one retreat. He said, this is a very secret mantra. I said, oh, you know, what's this secret mantra? And he said, if it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> And that has really stayed with me. (laughs) I think it's one of the truest teachings I've ever heard. 
<laughs> and this was certainly the case. Everything was absolutely perfect, except I was totally unable to enjoy it. <laughs> In fact, we were there for um, three weeks on this island, which is quite a long time. <laughs> and for nearly the whole three weeks, my mind just collapsed in depression and misery. And I wasn't able to apply any of the teachings that I had learned <laughs> over the years to get out of this depression. It was, it was very interesting to find myself in that place after all these years of practice. <laughs> and I found that probably the hardest thing was accepting that that's the mind state I was in. That it was hot, I don't do well in the heat, I couldn't really enjoy being there, and I was miserable. I couldn't accept that. The thought was, I should be happy. I'm in this idyllic paradise situation. It's only hot. You know, heat, heat shouldn't make such a big difference. I should be happy. And it seems that this is the insidious thought. It takes many, many different forms. I should be different. I should be different than I am. And it seems just so hard to just settle into that truth, the truth of what's going on. In that situation, the conditions were oppressive. There weren't many people who weren't complaining about how hot it was. But I couldn't get into the acceptance of that mind state. I remember the times of walking in, in New Delhi, in India, and seeing on the streets the beggars, the lepers, the sick children, really the very, a lot of suffering there. And I would say to myself, I should be more balanced. I should be able to handle this more, in a more equanimous way. And again, that inability to say, wait a minute, this is hard. I'm not having fun right now. <laughs> you know, rather than that tendency to keep trying to make the more pleasurable situation happen or the more pleasurable mind state. So we say, so I say, what's real? What's really going on? And what happens if you and I tell the truth about ourselves? Just simply, what if we tell the truth? It seems that many of us live in fear of this truth. There's actually a whole barrier, almost like a container of dullness that we walk around in because we don't want to face the truth of ourselves. And why? Why is it that we're so threatened if we tell the truth about ourselves? First, telling the truth to ourselves, not even 
to other people. First, just telling the truth to ourselves and then telling the truth to other people. But right now, we're just focusing here, focusing inward. What is being protected? What are we trying to protect by this evasion of the truth? It seems we're protecting a self-image, some idea that we want to present to the world and to others and to ourselves. The self-image is made up of ideas and pictures of who we are, pictures and ideas of who we want to be and how we want to present ourselves to the world. I'm the kind of person who really listens well. I have a lot of composure. I don't get ruffled. Now we carry these so-called positive self-images. Or I'm the kind of person that just flies off the handle. I'm in rage all the time. I can't keep my composure. So we have positive self-images or negative self-images, but it doesn't matter. It's all self-image. It's our idea about ourselves. And we hide behind these self-images. We hide our truth, our essential truth. It seems that we fear this truth. We hide because we fear this truth. First, we hide and fear this truth because we're afraid what other people might think if they know this about me. It's like I have a secret that I need to carry that I can't let anybody know about. It's like walking around with some kind of hidden secret that if somebody knew I'd be unlovable or I'd be left alone, nobody would want to be around me if they knew the truth about this. Or worse, we hide the truth from ourselves as if, as if we're afraid of ourselves. Afraid of myself. I'm afraid of myself. Such a funny concept. And yet this actually occurs It's like keeping what's true at an arm's distance. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to know. Leave me alone. If I find out, I'm not going to be able to handle it anyhow. I don't want to know. If I find out, I'm going to lose control. Don't want to lose control. So we hide it. We think if we're out of control, we feel threatened by this. This idea of being out of control feels very threatening for many people. And yet, when we look directly at the self or the ego or self-image, this is threatened. The ego is threatened by this looking because the ego perceives that it will lose something if it's looked at. 
even to the extent that it loses its existence, but it's not going to have a chance of surviving. It's not going to get away with its tricks if, it, if we look at it. Essentially, the ego feels threatened by death. Meditation practice is very scary for the ego. It doesn't like that. <laughs> The, I was reading this book called The Hidden Journey by Andrew Harvey, uh, A Spiritual Awakening. It's a new book that's come out. And he met a Tibetan Rinpoche in Ladakh. And while he was there, this German woman was having a short dialogue with him. And she said, is enlightenment painful? The Rinpoche says, enlightenment is not painful. How could it be? But she said, is the process towards enlightenment painful? And he said, yes. And she said, is this pain necessary? And he said, yes. One life has to end for another to begin. The ego has to die for awareness to be born. The ego does not die fast. (laughs) So we think we're being wise when we try to control and hold and mask the truth. But it's the ego being wise. It's the ego thinking and knowing that it has a strategy for its own existence. I've got to be in control. If I keep things all together, I can exist. I can be. But we resist. There's that resistance, which is still just the activity of the ego. And this resistance is a tangible feeling. We can feel this in our bodies when we're saying, no, stay away. When I was in Kotao, the island, it was really hard to accept that I was so miserable in such a beautiful place. Yet the conditions supported that misery. And I had high expectations on myself not to be bothered by this. I resisted the truth. Sometimes people call this resistance denial. I'm denying the reality here. But I don't really like the word denial. I think that it implies some kind of intentional not seeing, that there's actually some way I could not be in denial. However, what I see in my own experience and on other people's experiences is that, is that I'm doing the best I can. And other people are doing the best they can. They're seeing what is possible to see, given their conditioning, their past, who they are in this moment. And so we're all doing the best we can, and yet we all have places of holding. 
places that feel scary if we see the truth. So we have the self-examination, this meditation, inquiry, investigation, until the last hold is gone. So we're the self-image. The self-image is made up of ideals and expectations from the people who have been important in our lives. Often we say it's primarily the mother and the father, but mothers and fathers don't really like hearing that. (laughs) And it's not really true. There's many, many influences as we grow up that form these impressions on our minds. There are cultural pressures, the media, lots of impact from the media on how we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to go, how we're supposed to do it. Lots of religious ideals in the culture. A lot of confused language about ideals of perfection, how we're supposed to be. And this conditioning over the years, over lifetimes, whatever people believe in, form our habits, form that, that what we become to be. We could say the self-image is the same as one big ego habit. It's all these habits that we see in ourselves. But the problem isn't really as much these habits and these conditionings as it is that we think this is who we really are. We take this idea of ourselves and what we see in ourselves as the real me the truth of who we are. And in the spiritual teachings, it's said again and again, this is not you. This is not who you are. These are habits and conditions from the past. It's not your true essence. When we believe that these habits and conditionings are who we are, we miss the real essence of our being. We miss what's really there. This belief in a self, the belief in a solid I, overpowers that inner radiance and joy that light of who we really are, that radiance that's always there, that's naturally present, but the belief in these habits and patterns and tendencies as I interferes with that knowing. 
So we say, don't be afraid to look. Don't be afraid to take a look at these habits, these patterns, these tendencies. Because what you find will only bring great relief, will bring great joy. There's a short poem by... um, God, I need my glasses for this. (laughs) Just started using these a year ago. (laughs) By Antonio Machado. He says, I dreamt last night, O marvelous error, that there were honeybees in my heart making honey out of my old failures. And the Rinpoche that Andrew Harvey encountered, he goes on to say, The misery you will have to endure in realizing enlightenment is nothing to the misery you will endure in life after life if you do not realize it. (laughs) How's that for a warning? (laughs) He says, to get an arrow out of the flesh, you have to probe the wound. That hurts. But be grateful that you have understood enough, that you have understood enough to choose this misery. Not just grateful, be happy. It's important to be happy. Oh, he goes on to say, (laughs) this is a good part. Solemnly, he looked at each of us and said, however many times you fall, stand up. However many times you come close to despair, go on trusting. However many times your heart wants to close, keep it open. You just go on and on and on. Not let the fear stop us. Not let the fear freeze us. This fear itself has to be seen into. It has to be seen for what it is. So it does not have the power to block the truth, to stop us from seeing what's there. Not to be afraid of this fear, because as long as we keep moving through it, moving into it and through it, there's nothing that's going to stop us from realizing this great joy. The problem really is when we get stuck in the fear. The problem isn't with the fear itself. The problem is when we allow the fear to freeze us. When we're not able to take the action, when we're, when we're not allowed to, allowing ourselves to move forward, that's the problem of the fear. The nature of fear is to block, is to stop action. That's the nature of fear. But what we need to discover is something that is more powerful than this fear. Something within us that is there 
that we have access to, which is our, compa- our capacity not to be blocked by this fear. Something that is stronger than the fear so we can keep moving forward. And it's not to fight the fear or see the fear as an enemy, something we have to get rid of, because this just causes more anguish and conflict within us, more tension, anxiety. In my experience, in my personal experience, fear has become my companion, my friend. It's something that's with me quite often, and it's not a problem. I experience it as a great deal of energy and movement in my body. It's there a lot, but it's not a problem. I label it fear because it reminds me of energy that I had earlier when I did feel blocked. But I'm not sure this energy deserves the label fear because it's not stopping me. It doesn't block me from moving forward, moving towards the things that are important to me in my life. So I don't even really call it fear anymore. It doesn't deserve the label, and I don't feel I need to do anything about it. And I think that we don't actually have to get rid of fear. It seems that when we have an issue, something that's a challenge for us, something that feels very strong for us, that fear can surround this, like when, if we fear pain in our body or we fear talking in groups. The fear can be there, but we work with that. We don't let the fear stop us until we feel strong, and then we let go and break through, and we don't feel that fear so strongly around that particular issue anymore. And then we're ready for the next challenge, and then the fear arises again. Ah, this one's going to be hard. We're walking into new territory, and the fear walks with us until we gain our strength. With that particular challenge, we meet the challenge, we master it, and the fear moves away. Then we go to the next challenge. There's always going to be the next challenge. (laughs) Again, we want it to be finished. But Joseph's mantra... If it's not one thing, it's another. I don't think the goal is really to be fearless. I think it's to be courageous and just keep moving into those challenges, not to be frozen, not to be blocked. When we finally face the truth of something that has been masked, that's been covered over, we finally open to it. We may feel a lot of grief, a lot of sadness for what we feel was lost, that had taken us so long to overcome this particular behavior, this pattern. It may be for so many years I wasn't able to speak up, to find my own voice. And now I'm beginning to find my voice. And there can be a lot of grief 
over, over that loss for how long I felt bottled up, for how long I had lost my spirit or your spirit. We find that our spirits can only be expressed through our essential truth. This is the expression of our spirit, is by speaking, by being, by manifesting our unique truth of who we are. I want to read you a story. Somebody on the retreat reminded me how much they liked the story, so I wanted to find a way to weave this in tonight. (laughs) (laughs) This is from How Can I Help, Ram Das and Paul Gorman. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty, a few housewives with their kids in tow, some old folks going shopping. I gazed gazed absently at the drab houses and the dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing, and he was big, drunk, and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled toward the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at a retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk drunk, that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. (laughs) I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. The trouble was, my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. (laughs) This is it, I said to myself as I got to my feet. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk realized, recognized a chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead 
and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, <laughs> but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A fraction of a second before he could move, someone shouted, Hey! It was ear-splitting. I remember the strangely joyous, lilting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left. The drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s, this tiny gentleman, sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delight delightedly at the laborer, as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed, as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clanking wheels. Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. <laughs> the old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking, he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. <laughs> I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Flex of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said, absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake, too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out to the garden, and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down, and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted the tree, and we worry about whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than I expected, though, especially when you considered the poor quality of the soil. It is gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up at the laborer, eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife, I don't got no home, I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn, standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, this is a difficult predicament indeed. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. 
the old man was softly stroking the filthy, matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on the bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. So you could think about this story in lots of different ways. I think about it right now as a metaphor for how to be with ourselves. Can we just say to ourselves, hey. (laughs) Come on and just sit down for a while. Let's have a talk. being gentle, just being kind with ourselves. When we hear our stories, when we hear our difficulties, let's let's sit down together and be quiet together. I think Wendell Berry's poem is very beautiful in this regard. says, I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings and I hear its song. Then, what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. So I call this a radical acceptance. Accepting what's true. Accepting what I see in myself and not being afraid of it. Yeah, so I'll feel depressed and and dissatisfied sometimes. And I'm likely to feel this depression. Or I'll be reactive at times. Yeah. So I'll be reactive at times. Sometimes people call this the shadow, accepting the shadow of ourselves. And we relax into this. This radical acceptance is a relaxation, a relaxing into the truth, not struggling, not fighting, but relaxing. 
And in this relaxation, as we keep relaxing in, we can know the essential self. That which is untouched by any experience, that which is untouched by any mind state, that which is quiet and still and is always present. I'll end with a poem by Rilke. Perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us once, beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something that needs love. May all beings see into the truth of things. May all beings know their essential self. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.